Chapter 16 of History of the Norwegian People, Volume 1 by Knut Gjerset. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 16 Life and Culture of the Viking Age. Intellectual culture is a complex and delicate fabric into which the fibers of experience and the finer filaments of secret and mysterious influence are deftly woven. Social environment and native talent fashion the texture, but the threads have been brought from many climes and every age has been laid under tribute. Wherever higher culture has been produced, a process of absorption of new elements, an accumulation of new experience, a borrowing of importation, have freely taken place. The stimulus produced by the new, with the attendant reaction of the native mind upon it, primarily determines all new cultural growth. The Greeks borrowed from the Orient, the Romans from the Greeks. From both came culture and Christianity to the rest of Europe. Even the far north had felt the thrill of this influence long before the Viking Age began, but the process of absorption of new elements had been slow, and the development uneventful. No sudden changes are noticeable till the migrations swept over Europe, and roll high the billows of general tumult and upheaval. The quickening effect of this great movement tore the peoples of the north from their ancient moorings, and as Vikings they burst forth, adding new terror to this dark and bloody period. In this first outburst of pent-up energy and unrestrained passions, we see the worst instincts of a primitive race let loose in savage warfare, which often throws the deepest shadow on the pages of Viking history. But justice even here constrains us to admit that it is but a shade deeper than a similar shadow which falls over the history of all human warfare. To consider minutely all the acts of vandalism and cruelty perpetrated by the Vikings would not give us the satisfaction of having shown that their system of plunder and bloodshed differed essentially from that of the Roman generals, of the pious crusaders, the defenders of the faith, and most Christian princes of later and more enlightened ages. It must also be borne in mind that on these expeditions we meet the Vikings as warriors, and that the outrages often committed can furnish no adequate criterion for judging their life and culture in general. The nature of the Viking campaigns furnishes an easy explanation of the panic which seems to have seized the inhabitants of the countries exposed to their attacks. A cruel fate usually befell the towns and cities they seized. Not only did they kill and plunder, and carry women off into slavery, but they spared no sanctuary, and nothing holy could stay their rapacious and destructive hands. When the battle was over and the victory won, they would celebrate the event in drunken carousals in which the skulls of their fallen enemies often served as wine bowls, and other acts equally gruesome were commended, which might well strike Christian hearts with horror. Even human beings are known to have been sacrificed to the gods, and when a city was taken, children would be transfixed with spears and given to Odin amid wild outbursts of triumphant rejoicing. If we add that by means of their fleets they could depart at will, only to reappear at the most unexpected moments, that the inhabitants often felt powerless over against this dreaded enemy, we can understand the people's superstitious fear, the sad laments and exaggerated stories of the old writers, and the prayers offered up in the Christian churches. From the fury of the Northmen, Lord God, deliver us. Intellectually and culturally, the whole period was one of general contraction and retrogression, in which ancient arts and civilization were forgotten, and ignorance and rude manners prevailed. Viewing the period thus, we may justly term it the Dark Ages. A tone of retrospection and sadness was prevalent among those who possessed learning and culture. They looked backward to the days of Greece and Rome as to a golden age that would never return. The sun had set, they thought. The world would never again become what it had been in ancient times. Their only consolation was that after death there awaited the Christian, a blissful life in heaven. But these dark centuries represent not only the downfall of the old, but also the birth of the new. Viewed from this side, 
we find the period to be an era of expansion and development in which old barriers were broken, and new opportunities were given to the peoples which had hitherto been regarded as dwelling outside the pale of civilization. On their expeditions, the Vikings had come into direct communication with nearly every part of the then-known world. Their sphere of activity was thus immensely widened, and their ideas of the world were altered correspondingly. New ideas from the Christian faith, from Greco-Roman civilization, and from Irish poesy and learning poured into the north, and became the leaven which brought the half-slumbering energies of the Scandinavian peoples into full activity. A new culture was produced which soon placed the peoples of the north in the front rank of enlightened and progressive nations. Norway and her colony Iceland became the center of literary activity in northern Europe during the Middle Ages, and Norse mythology was elaborated into a system which, though inferior to that of Greece in beauty, surpasses it in depth and grandeur. The Scandinavians became leaders in navigation, commerce, and discovery, and developed a system of laws and government which has left deep and lasting traces wherever permanent Viking settlements were founded. The maritime enterprise and naval warfare attending the Viking expeditions gave a great stimulus to shipbuilding and navigation in the north. We have seen that even before this period the Scandinavians possessed great skill in shipbuilding and could construct vessels of considerable size. In the Viking Age, a great demand made itself felt for vessels suited for long voyages, and able to carry as large a number of warriors as possible. In the Mediterranean Sea, they became acquainted with Greek and Roman ships, and every effort was now made to construct ships of large size and of improved type. The larger sea-going ships were of two kinds, merchant ships and war vessels. An early type of merchant ship was the Kjol, Anglo-Saxon Kjol, but during the greater part of the Viking Age the Kunare, Old Norse Knur, and the Birding were common types. Later a larger-sized vessel, the Buse, Old Norse Buse, came into use, and still later the Koge, Old Norse Kuger, which soon developed into a war vessel. The merchant ships were quite broad and high in proportion to their length, with half-decks in the prow and stern. The goods were placed in the undecked middle part of the vessel. The ship had one mast and a four-cornered sail. The mast could be folded down and would then rest on supports high enough so that a person could conveniently pass under it. The oar-shaped rudder was fixed to the right side of the vessel near the stern. This side was therefore called the steerboard, Old Norse Stjernbordi, while the left side, which was at the back of the helmsman, was called the backboard, Old Norse Backbordi. Oars were used only in the front and rear ends of the vessel. Of the warships, the Askar and the Elidi were older types, which seem to have differed little from the ordinary merchant vessel. A later type was the long ship, so called because it was long and narrow, with high prow and stern. This type seems to have come into use in the 10th century. These ships were beautifully painted in various colors and were ornamented with wood carvings. Oars were used along the whole ship, and on both sides hung a row of shields painted black and yellow alternately. The prow was gilt and shaped like the head of a bird or animal, usually like that of a dragon. The sails were usually striped, red, blue, and green, and were often made of costly material. The warships were divided into various classes according to their shape and size, and the service for which they were intended. The scythe was a narrow, swift sailing vessel. The schnechia was supplied with a sort of snout. The drage, Old Norse Dreki, or dragon ship, was larger than ordinary, with a prow like a dragon's head and a stern often shaped like a dragon's tail. The bardi was also a large ship, built for the special purpose of ramming and sinking the ships of the enemy. It had iron rams both on prow and stern. The warships had a full deck and second half-decks in bow and stern. The forward half-deck was called the Forstavins deck, and the rear half-deck Lüftingen. 
Another classification was made according to size by counting the number of row benches on one side of the ship. In this classification, the ships were known as 13 bench, 15 bench, 20 bench, 30 bench, etc., with 26, 30, 40, and 60 oars. The most common size was the 20 bench with 40 oars and a crew of 90 men. On the 30 bench, there were two men to each oar, or 120 rowers, the crew consisting altogether of about 260 men. King Olaf Tryggvesson's famous ship, the Long Serpent, is said to have had a crew of 300 men. The scattered Viking bands, which operated in a more desultory way at the beginning of the period, were gradually united under able leaders into fleets and armies of great size. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle shows how the Viking fleets in England were growing. Year 787. In his, King Brehothric's, days came three ships of Northmen from Hiratherland. Year 833. In this year, King Egbert fought with the crews of 35 ships at Karum. Year 840. In this year, King Ethelwulf fought at Karum against the men of 35 ships. Year 851. In this year, 350 ships came to the mouth of the Thames, and the men landed and took Canterbury and London by storm. Year 877. 120 ships were wrecked at Swanawick. Year 893. In this year, the great army returned and came to land at Lemenemuth with 250 ships. At this time, the ships must have been of the older and smaller types, but if we assume that each ship had a crew of only 40 men, 350 vessels would bring an army of 14,000 warriors. Similar numbers of ships are mentioned by many other sources. The chroniclers describe in glowing colors the vast numbers of the invaders. They are compared to swarms of grasshoppers that cover the earth. The Viking ships, says an Arabian writer, fill the ocean like a flock of red birds. An Irish analyst says that the ocean rolls billows of strangers all over Erin. Fleet upon fleet is spewed out by the sea, so that there is not a spot on the island where the ships are not found. Excepting the ships of the Saracens in Spain, and the small beginning made by King Alfred in England, the peoples of Western Europe had, as yet, no fleets. These great naval armaments, therefore, gave the Vikings an advantage which largely explains the success which they achieved in their campaigns. The size of the army was no less imposing than that of the fleet. At the siege of Paris in 885, the Vikings had 40,000 men, of which 30,000 probably constituted the actual fighting force, if we may believe the old sources. In the Battle of Saucourt, 9,000 Vikings are said to have fallen. But the success of the Vikings was due to their superior training and equipment rather than to the size of their armies which in many cases seems to be exaggerated. Professor Oman says, But no less important than the command of the sea was the superiority of the individual Viking in battle to the average member of the host that came out against him. The war bands of the invaders were the pick of the north, all volunteers, all trained warriors. In a Frankish or an English host, the only troops that could safely be opposed to them, man to man, were the personal following of the kings and elder men of England, or the dukes and the counts of the continent and these were but a small fraction of the hasty levy that assembled, when news came that the Danes were ashore at Bremen or Boulogne, at Sandwich or Weymouth. The majority of the Herban of a Frankish country, or the Fjord of an English shire, was composed of farmers fresh from the plough, not of trained fighting men. Enormous superiority of numbers could alone compensate for the differences in military efficiency. If that superiority existed, the raider quietly returned to his ships or to his fortified island base. If it did not, he fell upon the landsfolk and made a dreadful slaughter of them. How could it be expected that the Kjarl, who came out to war with spear and target alone, should contend on equal terms with the Northmen equipped with steel cap and mail shirt, 
and well trained to form the shield wall for defense and the war wedge for attack. Working against the hastily arrayed masses of the landsfolk, the Viking host was like a good military machine beating upon an ill-compacted earthwork. The Viking army was a strong and permanent organization, with able commanders and officers. It had infantry and cavalry, spies, sappers, and a well-organized commissariat. It had catapults and battering rams and other machinery for the carrying on of sieges. Military tactics were well-developed. There was strict discipline and perfect obedience to authority. End of chapter 16